Have you tried Music to Code By yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're still here in Oslo. We are. At NDC. We're staying here for forever. Yep. And that's about it. So we really don't have a lot of small talk because it's been the same story every day. Yeah, yeah. So this is the last day. Yeah, we're almost done. Yeah, June 16th. The sun sets very late around here and comes up very early. Yep. We use our blackout blinds. Yeah. Okay. We're just about acclimatized, so it should be time to go home. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's roll the music for Better No Framework. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, you know, I've been hammering down these Xamarin plugins. Yeah, yeah. And this is another great one. This is PCL Storage. So this is a consistent, portable set of local file I.O. APIs for .NET. Windows Store, Xamarin iOS, Android, and uh, it's essentially a plugin so that you can access the local storage on a on a phone or That's device. That's cool. Yeah. Do you see who built it? Yes, I did. This is not an accident? Well, it's not Mont- Montemagno. No, it's not. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's right. Do you see who built it? Oh, Daniel. It's Daniel Playstead. Yeah, Daniel We, we just interviewed earlier today. That's right. That's yeah. very funny. Yep. It's good stuff, and I've used it myself. That's all. Oh, you have? Oh, I sure. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. I don't know. I, I, I just don't think much about PCL with the whole .NET standard and kind of the new approach to things. And, but it, it's well, but it's still the, the way that you build Xamarin Forms applications right, right now. For now, anyway. For yeah. now, yeah. So yeah. it'll all get standardized. Interesting. So who's talking to us, man? I grabbed a comment off of show 1401, the one we did back in January of 2017, just not that long ago with Tom Kirkhoff. And we're talking about monitoring Azure apps, which I'm sure we'll probably address at some point today as well. Yep chatting with Barry here. And this comment comes from Martin, who says, if you allocated hardware and your queues are empty every few seconds, you may be wasting money. What you probably want to do is to find a simple SLA for every queue, which describes how quickly messages in the queue should be processed and then scale the queue processor to be within this SLA. This is referring back to the show about how empty should queues be, what's the appropriate resourcing, and so forth. For example, if your customers are static, if messages are processed within 30 minutes, happy if more than 30 minutes, but less than 60 and sad, 
that. If more than 60, <laughs> you might want to optimize. I like his SLA approach. He's very much yeah, like my SLA good. approach. Happy and sad. You might want to optimize the scaling so there's always pending work, but pending work is expected to complete within 20 and 30 minutes or a bit slower depending on how much you value your customer's happiness. Hmm. As brought up in the show, there's always a risk for poison messages unless you have infinite loops. A simple way to check for those is using the message.dq count in Azure. If a message has been processed a bunch of times already, there's probably something wrong with it. You should move it into a poison queue and trigger some sort of alert. Hmm. These, you know, queuing patterns, yeah. these are pretty well known. MSMQ has been around for forever. And sure. So there's a whole concept of poison queue and so forth. Uh, hard to disagree with any of that, really. Although it's interesting, as we keep talking about Azure optimization in one form or another, it's like, if you're over-provisioning here, so your queues are always empty, yeah. how much money are you overspending? Is it a buck? Yeah, you know, right. Or even if it's a hundred. Like, I just feel like these are things where we're over-optimizing. Maybe, the, yeah. the amount of energy it takes to do that or to run close to the ragged edge of optimization so you sure. run the risk of going over your SLA or ha not being able to tolerate a downturn. Mm -hmm. It's not worth it. Right? Right. A little insurance policy makes sense. Either way, Martin, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We push him into the poison queue. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Okay, let's bring on Barry. Barry Laubrex is an independent software architect and developer with a passion for the cloud. He's also a Pluralsight author and a user group leader. He lives in the Netherlands with his beautiful wife and baby girl and loves to play with their two Siberian Huskies. Wow. Yeah. Siberian Huskies. That's a lot of dog, man. That's, that's a lot of dog. That's a lot of hair. And that's a lot of hair. <laughs> and that's a lot of walking. <laughs> Does it ever get too hot for them? It's almost always too hot, yeah. even in the Netherlands, yeah. where it's very, very cold sometimes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they, have they belong in, in Siberia. In right. the Arctic, yeah. yeah. But so they do throw a lot of coat off, too. If oh, you, yes, yeah. always. All the time. Every you, tree, oh. I know people who've literally made sweaters out of, <laughs> out of husky hair. Because they had so much of it. They yeah. Literally, yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. And if you know, if you want to spend the time to spin it, it actually makes a decent wool. Uh -huh. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We can actually brush them and then we have an extra dog. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. We do. It doesn't move around much and it doesn't smell as bad, but yes, I'd extra dog. The other dogs are like, hey, this dog doesn't move too much, but he smells familiar. Exactly. We call him Lint Dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my boy. goodness. Uh, so. How's the show been for you, man? You're all you're on your talks. We're almost at the end of no, the show. No, no, yeah. I'm uh, actually uh, closing it out. So I'm doing the last talk, wow. one of the last talks. That's always tough. Yeah, so I hope everybody's still awake. Yep. You yeah. know, especially after the party uh, yesterday. Right. It was so a I good have to one. Be super entertaining. Yeah. Keep everybody awake. Yes. And, um, uh, or abruptly loud. That abruptly also works loud. too. Oh, pretty yeah. loud. Yeah. Well, I'll try that. <laughs> so, but it's a great show. It's uh, yeah. great talks, great speakers, very uh, deep dives as well. Yeah. Sure. I like that. It's not just a sales talk. Yeah. It's very, uh, very much more community-focused A lot of people that are, that are building software, yeah. you know, makes a difference. We've talked about platform as a service in Azure pretty much since the beginning of Azure. Mm -hmm. That's really where it started. And there just seems like there's so many options. They, they're pouring everything into Azure. And how do, you, how do you sort it out? I mean, where do you start? Oh, that is always the, very, the, the most difficult question because, uh, well, there are over, let's say, 76 main services in Azure, something like that. I, That's I keep track more of than it. there are Baskin-Robbins flavors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. So, how, I mean, if you have a hard time problem choosing an ice cream, yeah, think exactly. about how many. Yeah. Well, 
you start at the core, and the core for building uh, applications with Azure is Azure App Services. Because okay. that's where you host your stuff, and that's where you orchestrate your stuff with. If I make a, a website, an Azure website, that's essentially an app service. Exactly. Yeah. So App Services, that's a platform that consists out of a couple of services. So you have Azure Web Apps, mm -hmm. you put your website in that. You have Azure API apps, put yeah. your API in there, makes sense. Yep. You have Azure mobile apps, you put your mobile backend in there. Mm -hmm. You have logic apps, and then you have function apps, so Azure Functions. And they're all basically services anyway, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, it depends a little bit on who you ask what's actually in Azure App Services. Because mm -hmm. logic apps, for instance, is an integration thing. It's yeah. more of an evolution of Azure BizTalk services, of the BizTalk uh, that's also on-premises. Sure. So they do not have Azure BizTalk service anymore, as of May 30th or something. Now you actually have to do uh, logic apps, and then uh, you use that to actually create a workflow and then weave all your stuff together, right. really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the difference between those things in Azure App Services is, is as follows. So the web app, you can use that to host your web application in there. The API app you host to, uh, to you, you use to host your API apps in. Now, a web app can contain a web API, right? Exactly. So what's the API app differently? Yes, that's a very good question. Yeah. It's really not. Okay. Because the app services have lots of features, things like authentication, authorization, diagnostic logs, mm. deployment slots, which are very cool. Because uh, when you have a deployment slot, you can deploy your new version of your application in the deployment slot. You can test it. You can do all sorts of things with it. Right. And then when you're happy with it, you sh just say swap. And it swaps that slot with the production slot. Yeah. And then you have your website hotly swapped into the production slot with almost no downtime. Because as you almost make sure... Almost no? Almost no downtime. What does almost mean? Well, as you make sure that the application, a new version, is hit a couple of times, so you have all your JIT compilation, all that stuff right. is already done. You're properly started up. Exactly, and then you swap, so you have no downtime from that aspect, but mm -hmm. if you're in the midst of doing something as a user, and maybe you store some state within the instance itself, you shouldn't do that, but maybe you do, then you lose that state, obviously. Right. So there might be some people that, that lose their connection. That's actually an architectural mistake, exactly. then, really. Because I love a zero downtime update. It's like very difficult. Before the cloud, man, I made a lot of money making that stuff work oh, for yeah. people. Mm. That yeah. was a business. So the API must have some specific higher level things that are particular to the API, right? Well, the things that were uh, specifically unique for API apps were the API definitions. Right. So that is where you expose a Swagger definition file that contains all the things that your API does, basically. Right, yeah. But those things are also available for web apps, for mobile apps, and for all the other app services as well. Okay. I actually asked around about this as to what the API apps still do uniquely. Right, right. And the answer was that uh, you get a nice, unique icon on your Azure portal. So Isn't that you that know nice? that's an API. <laughs> <laughs> ah. That's it, huh? That's it for now, yeah. Okay. But you never know because this stuff is moving really, really, really quickly. So do I need to have a specific API app? Or, or can no, I just not really. If you have an API, just host it in a web app. Yeah. Because we know for sure that that thing doesn't go away. Right. Yeah. It, it has been there since forever because it was previously websites, right. and now it's web app. Okay. So you'll be fine with that. It, do you think this is more of a, just a bias towards like the website's approach seems to work best around ASP.NET, mm. that, that API apps make more sense if you're working in Node or Python or you know, a non-traditional language in the, in the no, Microsoft No, not space. per se. All the app services themselves, they can run all sorts of things, like okay. .NET, like ASP.NET. So ASP. equally .NET. language agnostic? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because mm. it's all the same 
engine really. Right. And there's just a couple of differences. So web apps you host your web app in. Uh, mobile apps has a couple of differences. For mm -hmm. instance, you can use that uh, to host your mobile backend in and then connect with that from the mobile apps uh, SDK, which you can run on Android, iOS, JavaScript, even for Cordova, uh, Xamarin Forms, and you name it. When I build mobile apps, I'm just building a web API and calling that from my mobile app. What's the what is what what's mobily about the backend? as opposed to well, the things that you get API. for free and this is where the the magic happens is that you can uh, use it to get uh, offline push so that means that when your client is offline and that happens uh, mm -hmm. sometimes when you have a mobile app you can still continue to work there on your SQLite database or whatever mm -hmm. a little database that you have running on your device and then when you come back up online again you push that data up Okay. through the API itself, and then mobile apps, the backend, it knows what the difference is, and it can tell you, oh, there's a conflict, for instance, that's a nice or feature. everything is good. Yeah, yeah, that's very nice. Yeah. Don't you think they should consolidate these three things into one name that just has a few odds and ends features around it that are unique, like the mobile push aspect? Like, it just seems confusing. It is very confusing, yeah. And, and I think uh, at some point this will all be squashed into one big mm -hmm. thing, which you're... It, it kind of already is, because right. if you spin up a web app and there you say, I want to do uh, push notifications, which is also a unique thing for mobile apps, yeah. and it says, all right, now now this thing is not a, a mobile app. Right. Because we mm. just uh, push some site extensions and uh, some background magic, and then it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Because basically, it's all the same thing. Yeah. It runs on the same magic. Right. I get it. No, I like it. And it's good. Yeah. We're waiting for the great consolidation then, right? Because we just want to thin this thing out a little. Exactly. We're waiting on that, but uh, also not, not that much because that means that all my Pluralsight courses have to change. Uh, <laughs> so, well, so let it be for, for a while. <laughs> Hard on you, yes. Yeah, Hard on me, yes. yes. So yeah. easier on the world, that's fine. Yeah. What about logic apps? Where do they fit into the equation? Yeah, so you have also logic apps and function apps. I'll talk about that uh, in a bit. Mm -hmm. Logic apps are a bit of an odd duck. You don't deploy stuff in a logic app like a web app or an API. Mm. It's just something that you uh, use to weave a workflow with. Yeah, it's glue. It's right? glue, exactly. Yeah. So you just create your workflow. You, you start out with a trigger. So a logic mm. app is triggered either manually or with a timer, for instance, every 15 minutes you run something. Mm -hmm. Or by, there's a new email in uh, Outlook, or there's a... File gets dropped in a folder. Whatever, there yeah. are many, many triggers, many, many connectors for, uh, for everything. And mm. those things come out every day, I think. There are hundreds of them they already. keep coming up with more. Yeah, it's very cool, because that means you don't have to do it yourself. So you start out with the trigger, and then when that thing starts, you do something. Yeah, this is where business logic would go, right? And yeah, I'm, I'm exactly. gonna get a trigger on something that was written to a table, and I read that record, and if it's this or that, then I make a call to something else. Yeah. I call another trigger or another target. Exactly. Yeah. You call. You basically are calling APIs. Yeah. And you can then also um, put APIs that you have hosted yourself in there or APIs that are somewhere else sure. in there. Yeah. And also function apps, which are basically also APIs that you build yourself. Now, function apps different from Azure Functions? No, but that is, that is a confusing term, because function apps are the same as a web app or an API app or a mobile app, and one function app can contain one or more Azure Functions. Okay. Hmm. It's just a hosting platform, the function app. A function app is one or more Azure functions that are all grouped together then in, under the same uh, namespace? Exactly. Yeah. Under that same function app. I got gotcha. you. And a function app, just like a web app or a logic app or something else, before we get into that, those things run on Azure app service plans. 
Those okay. are just an abstraction of your resources. You say, I want, uh, I want this app service plan tier, S1 or something, and it indicates you have two cores and such and such RAM and uh, such and such speed. Sure. And you can scale that up and down. Okay. Uh, but of course, Azure Functions falls in this banner of serverless. Yeah, Absolute, exactly. Ter admittedly, terrible name. We had a panel where yeah. we talked about, yeah, there's that's, a server, it's just not yours. That's coming up in a couple weeks. Yeah. 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 And that's where it gets mm -hmm. weird, because function apps themselves, you can run them serverless, but you can also run them as uh, an app service. Hmm. So mm -hmm. you run them as an app service, that means that you can run things that are long running, things that are longer than five minutes. Right. You know, you might misuse it to run your stored procedures that run for three hours or something. Right. Yeah, you know? yeah. There needs to be a place for that in Azure. Sure, it has to live somewhere. Yeah. But if you have smaller things, smaller functions that you actually run, just mm -hmm. pieces of code, something comes in, you're, you're resizing an image or something, you do that, and then you're done, and it takes just a, just a second, you can run a serverless. Version of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that just means that you don't pay for the thing the whole month. Yeah. You just pay for the thing whenever the function is called. It. And that's it. In a lot of ways, logic apps are serverless as well, because they're yeah. just a workflow without a container of any kind, whether that be exactly. a VM or anything like yeah. that. And, and because of that, those two are weird things in the app service container, right. let's say. And I think that Logic Apps, for instance, doesn't fit in there, basically, because it's really not the same thing. You don't deploy anything in there. Right. It's really uh, integration. Right. It's, it's yeah. BizTalk, basically, in yeah. the cloud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which gives me chills all by itself. But yeah, but this is different. It's better. But it's, it's just an if this, <laughs> then that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's blue. It, yeah. and We've done a show about this, but maybe I did this over on Run As Radio, where we're talking about Logic Apps with integration into third-party things like Salesforce, right? Yeah. So that you're using Azure to own the keys to getting access to Salesforce, and you can actually plug into what a customer calls, or when you make a new contact, it actually could kick off a whole process, right? That executes completely out of the context of Salesforce. It's kind of amazing. That's interesting because those are yeah. typically things that are pieces of existing apps, right? I mean, yeah. in a in a traditional software system that might be you know it part of one assembly in one part of the middle of your app right mm -hmm. yeah and now you've got all these things talking together and services here and services there what's an app you know it's yeah. like that's a great question what is an app what now? is an app well an app is a system I guess it's yeah, it's and it consists out of multiple serv servers. It's everything and that servers. works together to f to to do something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but so it, a logic app is a great example of that. Yeah, you know, most apps are just business processes that are automated, right? Right, just yeah. processes, and a, and a logic app is just that. Yeah, just and I guess it, it all comes down to the to the resources used and the and how you build a customer and what they're, you know, it doesn't really. It doesn't really all fit in the same place. Sure. You know? Yeah, and I, and I also get sense, like I do with many Microsoft products, it's like, there's 10 ways to solve any given sure. problem through this yeah, stack of always. stuff. Yeah. For better or worse, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, guys, hold on right here while we take a minute to pay the bills. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud platform. What? Isn't this a .NET show? Yeah, .NET runs on the Google Cloud platform, man. Everything in .NET? You bet. All the .NET core libraries and more, including 200-plus Google.com and cloud services. Hey, John Skeet's behind it. He's a genius. The John Skeet? The Rescue the Princess John Skeet from Stack Overflow? <laughs> yeah, the one and only. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine which is Google's hosted Kubernetes environment, and it runs like, well, 
Google. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. I'm reading it now. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. Yep. You can get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. Also, there are PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And if you need help, there are a great set of partners to get workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. .NET on Google. Who knew? And you're listening to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here. We're talking to uh, Barry Laubrechts about uh, Azure Platform as a Service offerings, trying to make sense of it all. A like bountiful of riches, right? Yeah. Almost too much. Any other app services people just don't know about or miss out on? Well, no, those are really the core things. Sure. So where you deploy your services and your applications in, and mm-hmm. where you weave your logic with logic apps. Yeah. One, one special thing about uh, function apps, and you guys have talked about this on the show as well, so Azure Functions, mm. is that it's very, very easy to actually uh, be triggered and do something with that. So right. for instance, you can choose uh, a queue as a trigger, yep. and then when a queue message comes on the trigger, by magic, the function app just executes does something with the message, you can do something with the content of the message, mm. and then the message gets handled. You don't yep. have to do anything for that. That's all the plumbing that, that Azure really provides. Azure provides the queue. You don't need a queue. Exactly. And yeah. you don't need to handle the queue. Mm-hmm. You don't need to deal with poison messages and all that stuff. Right. Now, when we're dealing with Visual Studio, as we do, how are, how are things segmented into projects? Like, if I have a whole bunch of Azure functions that work together, is a project a unit of deployment, or... Can I have several Azure functions, maybe in an a-, a function app, that's a unit of deployment? Is that? Yeah, well, the, uh, for functions, it's a bit different because that's still all in preview in the okay. Visual Studio 2017 tooling. But in there as well, you create a new function app, and that's then a project. Okay. And in there, you have functions. All right, so one function app will have all my functions. Yeah. And then maybe another one would be a web app, and then perhaps exactly. I might have some logic apps. Yeah, a logic app. In the app. same solution, yeah. maybe. Exactly. And put all these things together to make a make a, a With an Azure system. queue or two here and there. Yeah, and that's where, for instance, Azure Resource Manager comes in. Because mm-hmm. yeah. if you want to deploy things like that, that's basically just infrastructure that you deploy. Sure. That's not really a, a platform as a service thing. And also web apps and things like that. You want them to be spun up first before mm-hmm. you actually deploy your application in there. Right. So you can do that, for instance, with an Azure Resource Manager project mm. that you can also create in Visual Studio. Really? A Resource Manager project? Yeah. All right. So it's out of the box with the Azure SDK. Walk me through that. When you create one of those, you get a bunch of JSON, and that just describes your whole infrastructure. And there you have a JSON object explorer, and there you can say, add a new resource, like a web app, for instance. Mm-hmm. And then the JSON of that web app appears. And then you can do things like uh, uh, have variables to name the web app, which pricing tier, all that stuff. And then you can just deploy that JSON, either through Visual Studio or through things like Visual Studio Team Services, through the cloud, and there you have it. So this is the stuff that we were before using the portal for. Yeah. Now we can just do it in Visual Studio. In a, and how long has that been in there? Oh, forever. Forever. Really. Yeah. yeah. Well, forever since the new portal. Oh, okay. So right. since uh, Azure Resource Manager really became oh, a thing. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why yeah. I have. Uh, yeah, I've, I've typically gone through the portal to do all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. But you really want all of that stuff as code. Because sure. then you can put it into source control as well. Yeah, of right. course. Or track changes. And then you can do things like yeah, building it. Right. Yeah. 
And those things are really, really handy because you can also interconnect things within an Azure Resource Manager project. Mm. For instance, you could create a database first, then you mm. create a web app, mm. and then you say, I want uh, in the connection string, I want the connection string to point to that database so that you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. Magical. Now, can I wrap it all in a container? <laughs> <laughs> you can actually. Yeah. You can also do that. <laughs> yeah. Now, also that is that tooling is in preview. Yes. Lots of stuff is in preview in Azure uh, and in Visual Studio, of course, because Visual Studio 2017 is new. But you can also do that. But then the difference, obviously, is when you use containers, you're using infrastructure as a service. Right. And when you're using Azure Resource Manager, you're really using platform, platform as a service. As a service so right. you have all those advantages like deployment slots, authorization, authentication, all that stuff sure. that's not in Docker or yeah. in infrastructure as a service because you have to do it all yourself. That's right. Yeah. So that's the consideration. Right. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's always sort of degrees of control too, right? Yes. What's important to you? I mean, you know, the only challenging side of the ARM approach and stuff is that you really need to work in the cloud. If you want to work disconnected or you want to work on-prem, containers just offer some advantages at the yeah. cost of you own a bunch of infrastructure now. Well, and I suppose, you know, the other, the other good thing about containers is if you don't want to tie yourself to one provider. Yeah, right? there's that too. You know, if you, if you don't want to be all in in Azure and only Azure, uh, because you know we're waiting, we're looking forward to the day when Microsoft jacks their prices way up, and then uh, you know the other providers start <laughs> looking better. Then we can just yank our Docker files and go home. You know. Yeah, that's that's a very good option for that. But there are different options as well, like Terraform, for instance. Yeah. Which oh, that's HashiCorp, isn't it? Yeah. And that kind of is the same thing as an as a resource manager. Uh, projects. So oh, okay. you also describe your infrastructure as code. Oh, but then you do it in a more generic way, in, a, in an abstraction layer just above that. And those guys just make sure that it can deploy on AWS, on Google, on Azure, and, I see. and you name it. Nice. Nice. Yeah, they're so, on my radars. We should probably do a show about Terraform at some point. Okay. It's, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting how all these tools for trying to manage your infrastructure as code, because there's a bunch of them. You can go down the chef yep. path and the mm -hmm. puppy oh, yeah. path and just PowerShell and DSC. And, and if we're all into Azure for the pass offerings, at what point do we just use Service Fabric for everything? This is like a, this is my question. I, mm -hmm. Every time I talk to somebody at Azure. Yeah, it's, like, it's it, for me that's a very difficult thing to answer where that fits, because it's also, like you said, different degrees of control. Yeah. Because you can actually use Service Fabric also as infrastructure as a service, mm. because you can put uh, Docker containers sure. in there. It's a bit strange to me. Yeah. You can do that, you can put them anywhere you want. But then that, that works when you want your stuff to also work on AWS or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. right. Because you can also use Service Fabric over there, obviously. Yeah. But basically, well, when you want to run whatever, because they have a thing called guest executable, mm -hmm. and that means that you basically can run anything in there. Right. So whatever executable you have, it doesn't have to be .NET, yeah. you can just run in there and then as your Service Fabric Make sure that it's available, updates it, and updates domains mm. in uh, failure domains. When one of the instances fails, another one picks it up yeah. and does all the magic with it. There's a lot of management behind Service Fabric. Yeah. yeah. A lot yeah. of dials and switches. A lot of dials and switches, but then again, uh, Service Fabric also runs your Azure App Services mm. under the covers. Right. But then there you don't see it. Right. So that's, that's kind of... The, the consideration that you have, and that's all about control. So I guess if you find yourself, you know, using these past things, and you find yourself needing more control over updates and failover and uh, scale, for example, yeah, you know, then then you naturally lean towards 
you know, tweaking your service fabric settings. Yeah, and if you want to uh, run this on-premises, for instance, because right. you can run it ev everywhere. Yeah. yeah. People like to do that sometimes. Is CDN considered a platform as a service? I think so. Obviously, uh, there are different definitions for that, yeah. where those things fall in. Yeah. But it's something that you can use to up the performance of your application. Right. So it's content delivery network. Mm -hmm. And what you do when you have, for instance, a website or something, you have static content in there, stuff that doesn't change much, mm. like images, video files, JavaScript, CSS, you name it. Yeah. And then you can just put that in there. So in storage that is connected to the Azure CDN service right. or another CDN service. Yeah. And then that CDN service just magically distributes all that content all around the world right. over points of presence that are everywhere. So yeah. when you download image files, it's going to be coming from the closest server. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and more importantly, it's going to be coming from a different server than your web app. Right. So your web app doesn't have to deal with that request. Right. And yeah, you can then do other things as well. Now, I mean, not that you care as much when you're in the cloud as, you know, I, I've certainly dealt with this with my my daughter's webcomic. Sure. Where the only thing served from the server in my closet is the root WordPress page. Right. And all of the resources are being pulled by a different CDN, it's not Azure, but, yeah. but for, for exactly that reason, that, that additional load, mm. it's, a it's not even the bandwidth, it's the requests. Yep. Yeah. But in the cloud, you know, you, you've got a little more flexibility there. I think it's just more, with CDNs make more sense in this cloud scenario from a delivery time. Yeah. I want my page to be two seconds everywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. Yeah, man, it's time to service our service servicing service on a serverless app service service. <laughs> wow. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah, it's like service to the power of nine. Silly. All right. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Check out their new DevExtreme React Grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM, state controllers like Redux, etc. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. And you can check it out and test it for free by getting it from GitHub. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Doug Menden. Congratulations, Doug. Yep. Golf clap for you, yeah. sir. And Doug just won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress, just by being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of said fan club. But you got to sign up to win. All right, Barry, you know what's coming. You I do. $5,000 to spend on technology. What would you buy? Oh, it, it's gone in a second. <laughs> I would buy a, a, a sunflower, which is a solar panel in this form of a flower that oh. follows the sun, actually. And it's huge. You wow. can put it in your garden, and you can almost... Uh, power your whole house with it. It's what? like 15,000, so it would be a down payment. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Love to you do that. Put it in your garden. It can power your whole house. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, uh, it? We're talking a European house. European okay. house, yeah. <laughs> an outhouse, perhaps. No, seriously. I mean, I you see houses in the states absolutely covered with solar panels. Is it more dense than a regular solar panel? I don't know how it works Do you specifically, know, but it, the it, you know, of course, it depends. There's so many. It depends when it comes to solar panels, right? Where where are you located? Like, look, if you're in Southern California, you get so much sun for so long mm. that uh, it's going to generate a lot more power. Uh, I, I mean, I've looked at these for a while now. They're mm. really interesting. They're three to six thousand kilowatt hours per year. Hmm. That's that's quite a bit. It depends hmm. on the size of the house and the, and how well the light works. How big are these things? And they're pretty darn big, man. Yeah, like, you're just a couple of a couple of meters high. Yeah. yeah. So, oh. Okay. You know, six eight feet high and 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 fairly wide. They make a couple of different models. Some with batteries built in, huh. so yeah. you can automatically have the battery solution. Huh. They're they're pretty in the sense that they you know quite an elegant looking thing that mm. unfolds like a sunflower and then I tracks, see. so you get power for longer. My concern is, of course, I'm following this because of the geek outs, right? right yeah, it's just sure. that those tracking mechanisms, they break, oh. right? Um, one of the things I looked at right away was how it responds to wind. Yeah. Because those motors are under load. And it's got all these cool safety systems where if the wind starts to pick up to a certain level, it'll actually turn the flower so that yeah. it's even with the wind, so the wind passes by it. And if the wind gets too high, it actually folds itself up. Wow. To, to protect itself. That's pretty cool. It's very clever. It's very cool. Yeah. 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 Wow. But uh, not inexpensive either. Yeah. yeah, so if I can't get that, <laughs> then I, I've, I've been looking at a new screen, and there's this uh, LG 30H inch curved screen. Yeah. It's just beautiful. They are pretty. I love one or two of those. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, it, I don't know. Do you put it, get enough so it just goes in a circle all the way around oh, you? Yeah. Yeah. The base of the curve or one More on top of the other? More screens is better. More screens is better. Yeah. Or one yeah. of those Microsoft Surface screens that are out here. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful for in the kitchen. Oh my goodness, yeah. The there's start, the there's hubs. twenty grand right there. Well, the, the, for, the, for the for oh, the eighty-four inch is like twenty grand, but that's mm. yeah, it's, that's your whole <laughs> kitchen. But there's like a forty-seven. That's uh, I think eight. Mm. Uh, they are expensive. Yep. Uh, very gadgety. Yeah. Well, let's get back into it. So some more past things. Um, traffic manager is on the list. What's traffic manager? Yeah. So we've just. Uh, talked about CDN, and then you can use CDN to get your content closer to your users. Right. Uh, because CDN distributes all your content to points of presence all over the world, and mm -hmm. there are much more points of presence than there are Azure data centers. Mm -hmm. So there is often one very close to you. Mm. But then how do you get there? Right. How does the web app, for instance, know that you need to go there, or the CDN? Right. Uh, yeah, how do you change that web page so instead of pointing to the image that's on the server that it's hosted on, is now pointing at the one for that request uh, in that locale? Yeah. You don't want to write that code, by the way. No. <laughs> no, no. We exactly. did that back in the strange loop days. That's hard code don't to write. Do don't do it. It's been solved. Let somebody <laughs> else do it for exactly. you. Exactly. These are solved problems. Yes. But then there has been a lot of hard work by very smart people mm. uh, gone into this. And this is traffic manager. Traffic manager, but this goes for everything and everything. Yeah, of basically. course. Yeah. But, uh, because so it's not just about the CDN performance, it's also when you have outages, mm. you know, recovery options, failover, yeah. all that sorts of things are picked up here. So the traffic manager is something that they use internally also for CDN, but mm. you can also spin it up yourself in Azure, and then you can use it for global performance. So let's say you have a web app running a, an application here in Europe somewhere, yeah. and you're trying to get to that from Australia, right. which you're very crappy bandwidth from Australia. It's, it's going to take a while. Yeah, yeah, because it's just a long way. And that's just latency, just the physical distance of things. Yeah, the speed of light's hard to beat. 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and latency would be fine if it was, were to be just one request. You know? right. If the latency was 200 milliseconds or something, that would be fine. Yep. But when you're getting a website or something, you have to get the HTML that consists out of multiple requests. Yep. CSS, all that stuff takes 10, maybe more, well, and that and adds and up. And web pages being as big as they are these days, so you got 60, 100, 200 requests. Mm. Oh yeah, easily. Yeah. Yeah. So that just adds up, so you want to get rid of that latency. So you can then just deploy another web app near Australia. Right. Yeah. They have data centers there that might solve it. But then again, a web app has a unique URL, a unique IP address. So right. how do you get the user to that? Because you probably have a pretty custom domain or something you want to send them to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can do it with Traffic Manager. So you spin up a Traffic Manager instance and you say to the Traffic Manager, these are my uh, instances of my application. Monitor these things. Yeah. And this is the URL that you're going to use. Mm. So then when people go to that URL, they're going to Traffic Manager, and Traffic Manager then decides where to send those people. So it's owning the DNS then? It's a DNS routing system. Right. Nice. Yeah. I like and that. And it does that based on the rules that you set. So I think per default, it is based on performance. So it checks out how much latency it is to one web app right. or to the other one, and then it sends you there based on wherever you are. We've come a long way since round robin, huh? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Geolocated DNS services, another yeah. tricky problem, especially again when you deal with failures. Yeah. You take down the site in Australia, you just want to reroute all those people to the next nearest site. Yeah, exactly. New Zealand. So the thing, the thing is not only for global performance, but it's also for availability. Right. Yeah. So it just checks if your website is up. And if it's not, it's just out of the loop and no requests will be sent there anymore. Pulled so from the pool. Cool. Yeah. And it, I mean, part of the challenge here is that DNS entries have a time to live, too. Yeah, so exactly. you've got to configure it in such a way. It's like, how long are you willing to be wrong? Yeah, and you I, can you can configure that yourself. Yeah, these days I configure all my URLs to one minute. I mean, who cares really? No, it's just yeah, it's just more, it's more round traffic. trips to your DNS server. Yeah. I mean, and, and I presume, and I don't know for sure. And correct me if I'm wrong. Traffic manager does charge you by the request. Yeah, it does. So, yeah. so you are going to incur some charges, but these yeah, are fractions micro, of a oh, penny. Microcharges. Right? Microcharges. Yeah. Yes. So when you're really successful, you're going to actually get a bill. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Your first billion DNS queries per month are at 54 cents per million. There you go. Okay. After a billion, it drops down to 37.5 cents per million. Okay. Not going not gonna <laughs> to argue about that. But, and I don't know about one minute. Maybe it's five minutes. You know. right. my, big, my big threshold with all of those kinds of timeouts is it's shorter than the time it takes you to answer the tech support call. Right. Right? As long as you don't answer on the first ring. Like, wait three rings before you answer. <laughs> and then you always answer tech support. You press refresh. Oh, working now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. that I have any experience with this. <laughs> Exactly. It's been a long time since you took a tech support call, my it's friend. It's been a while, but I've, <laughs> but I've taught a few people how to do it right. Yeah. <laughs> so you can uh, configure Traffic Manager to, uh, to do different things as well. You can also say people that are from Australia only get routed to the data centers in Australia. Right. Just to keep all their traffic in there. Because that's often a concern with people yeah. starting to use Azure or wanting to use Azure. Mm -hmm. So you can do that as well. And there mm -hmm. are different options as well. You also see Traffic Manager playing an internal role with, so I've got the web apps distributed to different locations, but now the data from those things I want to route to other locations, and I can use Traffic Manager to set those rules as well? No, data is very difficult. Oh, <laughs> okay. Talk to us about the data side yeah, of distributed web So this was the app. easy part, really. Okay, the friendly, happy part. Yeah, the friendly, <laughs> happy part. And then there's data. There's always data. It's always difficult. Data always is like, just angry, let's you know, face it. It's if angry it wasn't stuff. for all that darn data, this stuff would work so much better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> dataless applications. That's the new fad. There you go. That's where we're going to go. <laughs> dataless <Yeah>. serverless. <laughs> There's nothing left. <laughs> the nihilist service. <laughs> you just think about it. That's it. That's it. it only exists in your brain. And you're disappointed anyway. <laughs> yeah. So with the data, you have uh, you have some options, of course, mm-hmm. depending on what your requirements are. So you, for instance, could use geo-replication mm-hmm. in Azure when you spin up a, an Azure SQL Server mm-hmm. or an Azure Document DB or Cosmos database, whatever mm-hmm. it's called now. You mm-hmm. get geo-replication. That's just a, an option that's in there. And with that, you can say, I want all of my data that's in here replicated to one or more of these regions that yeah. I click here. Right. And then it automatically gets there with uh, a guaranteed low latency mm. and all that stuff. I think with uh, SQL, it's uh, five seconds or something yeah. before it's actually uh, replicated. And with the document DB and Cosmos DB, you can also choose a consistency level right. with that. Yeah. But the trick with that is that if you do that, all your data is replicated, always. Hmm. So mm. if customers want to keep their data in one region and the other customers in another region, mm. you can't use that. Right. That's very difficult. Sure then you have to do different things. You Mm. could, for instance, uh, shard your data. So you could choose to create, for instance, a database per customer based on a customer ID Mm. and then put that database somewhere in the region where those customers are. Right. And the other database in the region where the other customers are. In the scenario we're just painting, it would make sense to keep the Australian data in the Australian data center so the Australian customers hitting the Australian instances had the least amount of latency to get that data. Sure. But the trick there is you need to have some sort of a routing mechanism. Right. Because there will be Australians that will be traveling somewhere, for instance, and they hit another web app that Mm. is not connected, per se, to that same data store by default. So they're up in California. They hit the site as per normal. Geolocation routes them to a Western U.S. data center. They enter their account information. It should not say, account not found. It's not there. That makes a sad customer right there. Waiting three rings is not going to fix that. But what if if the customer has a a demand, like a rule that their data can only exist in in Australia. Yeah, well, and happens. I think that's exactly the scenario we're talking about. Yeah, is at that exactly. point, he's now going to take a performance hit yeah. while you access data from the Australian right. server. Yeah. Yes, and then the routing mechanism should figure out, based on who's logged in, where the data is actually stored and route yeah. the data commands all the way through there. Right. So is that stuff that you have to configure, obviously? That's not something that comes out of the box. That's right. something either you write yourself yeah. or you can use things like SQL Server Elastic Database Tools. Ah, it's a whole cool. mouthful. That's something interesting. Do tell. So the SQL Server Elastic Database Tools is basically just an SDK that you can pull into your application through Mm -hmm. NuGet. Mm -hmm. And these things can just create shards and a shard manager, Mm. which is basically just a database that contains metadata about where data in which database is. Okay. And can then route customers based on the shard key that you choose uh, to the right database. And a shard key can be something like a client ID, customer ID, Something unique. Now, is that going to change my connection string, or do I still have only one connection string to one database? Well, in the case of SQL Server, you're going to have to have multiple servers all over the world. So multiple servers connections. bound to a region. Yeah. So multiple connection strings. So this service is going to give me the connection string for this particular user, depending yeah. on where they are and what the rules are. Exactly. But this is non-trivial uh, code. Yeah. So you really tell. should use something like Elastic Database Tools. You don't yeah. want to write that stuff yourself. Yeah, it's sure. very difficult. Yeah, and, and, uh, and again, a solved problem. Yeah. And I, and I think it's very fair, you know, the work that I've done over the years with this stuff, is like, if you really want geo-distributed, reliable applications, mm. 
while you should be using as many of these tools as possible, there is a certain amount of code that always has to be written. You do need to deal with outages, mm. recovery, mm. that sort of thing, right? And I still think about the Poly Library. It's not yeah, a bad yeah. piece of software for bad. just presume that you're going to have to retry a couple of times. It's yep. okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's just uh, that's also the way of the cloud, mm. let's say. So you have transient failures. For instance, yep. you're calling your database. Sometimes it fails. Yep. Because of whatever, maybe the database refuses it. Maybe it's busy. Yep. I like, I like the way Gmail does it. You know, if you if you leave Gmail on and then your network goes down, it says, "Oops, disconnected." Trying again in, and then a countdown timer, right. and then a link to try now. Yeah. So you know, it's going to try. It's going to wait a minute, and then it's going to try again. Or if you want to just try it now and take your chances, you can do that. And does it have a circuit breaker after a certain number of tries? It just goes, oh, okay, I That don't I don't know, but yeah. why, why would it? Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't it just continue to retry it's forever? Because, you know, if the network's down, you have a choice as a user. You can either pull out your phone, which you've got, you, yep. you know, you don't have a data problem, or you can just close your laptop and yeah, close yeah. the browser and try it later. Yep. Now nah, you just you talk know? crazy talk, Mr. Franklin. But you know, it depends. That's Gmail, right? That's mm -hmm. not a mission yeah. critical system. If you if you have a microservice architecture and you've got one service calling another downstream service and that one goes down for whatever reason, the last thing you want is all the clients, the upstream clients, hammering it to death and saying, Are you there? Are you there? Are you there? Are you there? <laughs> yeah. You know so, so a circuit breaker pattern would work exactly. in that yeah, yeah. case. Yeah. yeah. And also, that's code you don't want to write yourself. Yeah. Right. And you have things like Poly for that. Yeah. But you also have things like uh, the Azure SDKs. For instance, if you have the Azure Storage SDK, it's all built in there. Retry policies nice. per default. Great. Entity framework, same thing. It's built in there by yeah. default. Yeah. Just use it. You yep. need to use it. Yeah. Just use it. Yeah. Not rocket science. Don't write it. Don't invent it. Yeah, Understand absolutely. somebody else solved the problem. Take advantage yeah. of it. Yeah. Anything else on the data side? Have we hit the big ones? Yeah, you have. Uh, there's also another option. You can also just keep all your data in one location. Right. Mm. right? And then uh, you separate the reads from your writes, basically. Okay. So uh, in, uh, in most applications, you read a lot more than you write data, sure. mm -hmm. usually. So what you, for instance, can do is deploy Redis caches, which mm. are caches that you get from Azure. Mm -hmm. It's also a platform as a service offering. You just mm -hmm. spin one up. And then you can put data in it and retrieve it really, really quickly because it's all in memory. Mm -hmm. You can put those all next to your web apps, basically. Mm -hmm. And then when you retrieve your data, which on the first hit will be slow, you put it in the cache locally. Mm. And then the next hit will be fast. And then when you write data, it will be slower again. Yeah. Then that's something that you need to weigh. Well, and I think Facebook has taught the average user about distributed caching, mm. right? Everybody's, you know, when they're new to Facebook, post something, goes to read it, doesn't see it, posts it again, and yeah. then both show up, right? right? So it's like, I think we've now taught the majority of people out there, it might be a little while before your thing shows up. Just give it a sec. It's going to space. <laughs> it's going to space. <laughs> <laughs> Cut it some slack. But, you know, for a long time, that pattern was unacceptable to a lot of organizations because it's just like that latency upset people. But I think, right. it, I think we've generally are more educated now. And we're accepting of the idea that, yeah, there could be a little lag from the right to the visibility of the read. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's all magic going on in the background. But just yep. give it a bit. Give it a sec. Exactly. You're in a chair in the sky. <laughs> We're all channeling our inner Louis C.K. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's a great uh, insight there, Barry. I appreciate that. Yeah. So then when you have all that stuff set up, you also need to secure it. Of 
course. No. 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 You don't need to secure anything. <laughs> yeah. The cloud's naturally secured. Yeah. Yeah. It's somebody else's exactly. fault. <laughs> so the first thing you want to do is obviously make everything HTTPS. Yes. The basics, right? Yep. Well, you know, there's an even better reason to do that. It's being that we were mentioning this here. Yep. Wi-Fi networks now are generally open, yeah. not yeah. requiring a password. Yeah, like here. Like yep. here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that means you have to have HTTPS on everything. Sure. The other thing that's a reality these days is HTTP2 is, is SSL only. Like the, yep. So the, all the new, the, all the current generation browsers, mm. right, if you're up to date on browsers, and most of the current generation web services, certainly the offerings from Azure and stuff, if you've got a certificate, so you're using HTTPS, you are using HTTP2. And the wow. performance difference is significant because you're no longer doing that whole request one, two things at a time. Right. They all come down to the big old whammy. Yeah, we did talk about HTTP2, didn't we? We have done a show on it way back when. It said, don't worry, yeah. this will be coming true. We're going to have to revisit that. It just is true now. It's like you don't have to do anything. It just happens. Mm. We're no longer doing the trickle down of resources into your web page. They all come at you as fast as your bandwidth can take it. Yep. But wisely, you have to have encryption on. Yep. Yeah. So most services in Azure have this by default. So yeah. things like uh, SQL, CDN, Redis Cache, all those things have HTTPS on by default. Right. But then obviously you also want to expose that to the outside world. When you have URLs for your web app, for instance, you want to put HTTPS on that. And you can do that very easily by buying a certificate yourself. Oh, or you that's, can there's nothing easy about buying a certificate yourself. <laughs> Let me well, tell you something. Or you can do it easier okay. by buying a certificate through Azure. Now, because that I'd like to know how to do. Yeah, because you have Azure App Service certificates. They want to sell you everything, really. That's <laughs> fine. I don't mind. That is you know what me I, neither. He, just to get a certificate, I mean, going back to the early 90s, sure. the web was, you know, happening. No, no, you, it's literally you need like a Dun & Bradstreet number. Dun & Bradstreet. You had to have a Dun & Bradstreet number, and that... that you know, that it basically is not painless. Today, well, what's your preferred free SSL cert service? Because there's a stack of them. Yeah. But you yeah. like get them through Azure. Yeah, I just get them through Azure yeah. with my Azure credits. And, yeah. and what is what does it run, a cert? And how then do you have to go through any extra processes to so get them? When you when you click on that, under the covers, it buys a certificate at GoDaddy.com. No. <laughs> no, no, no. It does. But then it does all the steps in the uh, certification request for you. And that makes it a lot more easy. Because you just say, I want to buy a, a certificate for this particular URL. And then maybe I want to bind it to this app service. You can do that later as well. And then it just takes care of everything. You just wait for a second, and then it's done. What if uh, I want another provider? Yeah, what if we don't like GoDaddy? <laughs> you can, but then you You do have not to do have more of this stuff manually. Exactly. Yeah. You can also just buy a certificate yourself. Yeah. That's more difficult. It is. And then import it into Azure as well, and then bind it to one of your, your bindings, just, just like you do in ISS. Mm -hmm. And you were mentioning there, there are a few places where you can get them for free. There are free certificate services. Again, you have to do this stuff manually. Uh, our favorite provider, DN Simple, DN Simple uh, yeah. Wraps, Kamono for certificates as well. Right. Like, but it's and there are great web pages of like, okay, you want to get a cert from here and you want to use it this way in Azure. These are the steps. Yeah. So it can be done. You know, I install Exchange Server certificates every so often, and that and it's just complicated enough you cannot remember it. Yeah. So I just leave myself notes about when to cry, <laughs> and you eventually get through it. When you buy. Uh, a cert uh, through Azure, 
to GoDaddy, do you manage that whole process through Azure as well, or do you make me go to GoDaddy to manage it? No, no, no. You don't know that it's GoDaddy. Oh, really. in that case, I only really if don't you dig care. into it. Yeah, basically, and then the certificate finally ends up into Key Vault as your Key Vault, okay. right? And that's the store where you store secrets, basically, Great. like certificates or encryption keys or even passwords and things like that. Okay, the secrets for your application. Good. Yeah, that's where your stuff for Salesforce ends up. It's over like Key Vaults. If you're going to go down this path, you end up spending some time in Key mm -hmm. Vault. Yeah. It's your friend, and it beats the heck out of the folder on your drive where oh, you yeah. originally got your certificate file and never remember to move it out. Yeah. Ask me how I know. Like, yeah. the, ask Sony. That's oh, what, right. you know, the Sony breach was basically propagated by yeah. them not cleaning up their private keys after they got them installed. Yeah. yeah. So it's well worth, a tool like Key Vault is worth the, the time and effort just so that you have them well managed. True. And for better or worse, the more automated you can make it, the better. Uh, Let'sencrypt.org, one of the free services. Oh, I mean, right. I'm, I'm not going to endorse them. It's part of the Linux Foundation, but, you know, if, you've, if you're complaining about the cost of keys, look. There are options, so uh, you know it's worth taking a look into that. Can you do wildcard keys through Azure as well? I think so. Yeah, you, so have, I get you have several options at mydomain.com or whatever. I think so. Yeah, I yeah. don't know for sure, but I think so. You can go pretty expensive. Okay. So probably <laughs> that's an option as well. All right. Yeah. Yeah, there are definitely different species of keys. Well, if you talk to a Troy Hunt, he's going to frown at you about a wildcard key because yeah. there's, there's <laughs> other potential exploits in that area. Right, yeah, yeah. There are the high-end keys, you know, the, the, the ones that have the, that actually they do validate the company and so forth. They provide mm. the different level lock symbols and things that nobody pays attention nobody to pays anyway. Attention, yeah. And then the bottom line is, at least if we've got an end-to-end -end encryption running, you get advantage of HTTP2. Yeah. Like you've got ninety percent of the way there. Feel good about it and right. move on. Unless we got specific cases to do more, but I, I mean, I'm glad to, that you went there. For better or worse, you immediately pushed the button on my friend here. He's like so tired of certs because oh, they're yeah. such a pain in the butt. They are pain. Beyond certificates for security. Well, obviously there's Azure Active Directory. Yep. Right. To actually authenticate your users right. and then yeah, have sure. uh, have security there. So you put your users in there because it's basically an identity store, just like Active Directory on-premises. You can link those two together as well mm -hmm. and have them sync up. And then you uh, hook your application up against that. And with app services, you basically have two options there. Mm. You either put all that stuff in your application, mm -hmm. which is non-trivial. Yeah. You have buttons in Visual Studio to do that. <laughs> not for every project. <laughs> also not in Visual Studio for every project. Right. They might come back. It's non-trivial. But then in App Services itself, you have a button in the Azure portal, and mm. you say, make my whole app service secure, my web app, for instance. Yeah. And then you can uh, tell it to uh, have people authenticate through Azure Active Directory, or maybe through Google, Facebook, right. you name it. Yeah. But then your whole application is secure. So that thing just stands in front of your application like a gateway and tells every request that comes through, mm. hey, you need to go and authenticate first before you come here. Right. But then the advantage there is you don't have to change your application. So it depends on mm. what kind of scenario that you use, really, and what your requirements Smart are. Smart buttons that yeah. I need to know how to push and when. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think it's important to just acknowledge that Azure Active Directory and, and the sort of traditional Windows Active Directory, the Azure Active Directory is a lot lighter weight. Obviously, it's running on the cloud. Yeah. But, you know, I think they've almost did a disservice by naming it the same, but I think it's yeah. just to, to handle the enterprise people that it'll work. Yeah, right. But it's certainly something we've got on our radar at uh, Humanitarian Toolbox because we're working with these NGOs where they really want their 
their users to be able to use the NGO's credentials to log into an app that we're running. And so that ability for Azure AD to bridge to a full AD and do that authentication without ever owning the ID, like just getting a token, it's kind of magic. And that's identity server too, is, plays a big role in all of yeah. that stuff. By the way, tell you a little story. I've been working on a new version of our podcast wave file uploader. This is something that I wrote in Silverlight years ago, and we still use it, but as you know, I, I can't load that into Visual Studio anymore because it's <laughs> Silverlight and that doesn't exist anymore, and uh, trying to find a browser that actually supports it now is kind of hard. Getting harder. So I converted to WPF, and I decided rather than have these files land on my VM you know, hard drive somewhere, I wanted to use uh, some cloud stuff. So I had done a Google Drive implementation for another reason, is I wanted to move log files from Azure to somebody's Google Drive who's looking at them, right? And that was pretty cool. So I figured I'd do that. And that was fine until I wanted to actually share those files, which is non-trivial on the Google side. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so I said, okay, well, let's just go do, do it with uh, blob storage. With blob storage, you create a, a container that's essentially a public container. Yeah, you can. And yeah. boom, you're done. I mean, you upload it to there, and now it's immediately available with a URL that you can pass around, which is perfect for us. So that literally, I, I changed that code this morning before we started. I spent hmm. about two or two and a half hours on it this morning. Nice. And that's it. And it just works. And you know, we're not talking just like an image that gets uploaded 100K. These are WAV files, so these are 200, 300 megabytes a piece. So you have to chunk them and you have to do you know, progress bar uploads and things like that, and it really did, was pretty trivial. I just yeah. like it. I just love the queues and the blob storage. and It's, it's so just, easy to it's use. It's so easy. And there's so much choice. Because like you said, those are big files and you have just that, just yeah. with big files in it. Right. You also have things for smaller data, like table storage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when you use the right tools, just how quickly that stuff goes, too. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. Yep. And in Azure, you really you have so much tools, so many tools that you you're bound to run into the right one, really. Yeah. But then again, you run into the difficulty: what should I use when? And that is why you're here, my friend. <laughs> yes. So thanks for all of this stuff and trying to deobfuscate for people. <laughs> my my pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me. All right, Barry. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the end.